Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Good afternoon. My name is Ian O'Connor. I have the great privilege to be the Vice-Chancellor and President of Griffith University. The Honourable Bob Hawke, AC, um, our two ministers that are with us today, Cameron Dick, the Honourable Stephen Robinson, MP, our very many distinguished guests. Now, my colleague, Professor Haig Patterpin, did a very long list of introductions to people. I actually have doubled his length. So rather than going through that long list of distinguished guests, if I can simply acknowledge my colleagues from Peking University, who I am so pleased to have here, particularly the, the representative, Professor Zhu Xing, the representative of the um, president of um, Peking University, colleagues from the embassy and from the consul general's office in Queensland, colleagues from universities across the country. Let me first acknowledge the traditional custodians of, um, of this land upon which we gather today. It's my very great pleasure to introduce the Honourable Bob Hawke AC. This lecture today is the culmination of our Australia-China Future Dialogues, and it reflects Griffith University's long-term commitment to Asia. When the university was founded in 1971, our foundation chancellor, that great newspaper man, Sir Theodore Bray, said, if Griffith was to be known for one thing, it would be for the development of close relations with our friends and neighbours in Asia. And that's a commitment that every vice-chancellor and every governing council, governing council of this university has remained true to. So our partnership with Peking University to look at the framework in which our two great countries can develop their relations in the years ahead is extraordinarily important. We are very pleased to have been able to partner with that great Chinese university, Peking University, or Beida, to develop this ongoing dialogue. This is year one, but this will be an ongoing dialogue. And I can think of no better person, no better person, to deliver the annual leaders' lecture than the Honourable Bob Hawke AC. Bob Hawke's an extraordinary man. He's made an, an amazing contribution to our society. Every aspect of his life he's lived with great distinction. He's a man who was a Rhodes Scholar, the leader or president of the ACTU, Australia's longest serving um, Labor Prime Minister, and, a, and in a period since he was Prime Minister, a person who has devoted a great deal of his time to developing the relationships between Australia and China. I'm sure he'll share with you some of that experience today. He's also a, a man who, throughout his periods of time in public life, was absolutely committed to the importance of education and of universities. And so I hope you're pleased to be here today, Mr Hawke, to, to see one of the universities that you were instrumental in its growth um, coming to... Um, a level of maturity. I note that um, over lunch, I've said that, um, and that we're fortunate to be here. He didn't say we're fortunate to be here today. I said we were fortunate to be here today. Um, but next year, he's actually going to come back, cut back on his number of speaking addresses. Next week, um, Bob Hawke turns 80, and he has an extraordinary level of activity, constantly engaging in public discussion, both behind the scenes and obviously publicly in terms of promoting good relations. So, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure to introduce the Honourable Bob Hawke AC, who will speak today on China's rise, 
its significance for Australia, the region and the world. Please make him welcome. Thank you very much, Ian. Distinguished guests, and particularly, uh, may I say, the representatives from Peking University, ministers um, and the representatives from the embassy, Chinese embassy and consulate, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, let me congratulate Griffiths University for its early recognition of and continuing commitment to the importance of Asia as a crucially significant factor in Australia's future well-being. And in pursuit of that commitment, the University's Asia Institute, in collaboration with the Queensland State Government and Peking University, has established a fund, uh, quote, to develop a future-oriented partnership between Australia and China. And as part of the proposed structure of, quote, Australia-China Future Dialogues, it's intended to have an annual leaders' lecture. And I can say to you, Ian, that I'm truly honoured that you've asked me to deliver the first of those lectures today. Now, I'm not simply being polite in saying that, for I've had the conviction, ladies and gentlemen, for very many years, that no relationship is more important to the future of Australia than that with China. This reality has emerged as a result of what I regard as the single most important peacetime decision taken by any political leader in the 20th century. And that was the decision in 1978 by Deng Xiaoping to move China towards a market economy and open up to the outside world. I repeat, in my judgment, there was no other decision, peacetime decision in the 20th century, which was more important for the future world than that decision by Deng Xiaoping in 1978. For China, the period since that momentous decision has been characterised by two constants. Firstly, the constant of historically unprecedented high and sustained levels of real economic growth. And secondly, by the constant scepticism of much of the outside world as to the sustainability of this phenomenon. As to the first point, the facts are by any standard uh, truly remarkable. Real economic growth uh, has averaged uh, virtually 10% uh, per annum uh, and China is now poised to pass Japan as the second largest economy in the world. Now, my friends, I've been in the fortunate position to witness personally the fleshing out of the bare bones of these statistics. My first visit to China was in 1978 and my 83rd visit just a couple of weeks ago. So my experience coincides exactly with the emergence of Deng Xiaoping's new China. I can remember sitting in a makeshift shed on the rural surrounds of Pudong, across the river from the city of Shanghai, listening to and looking at the projections of the manager responsible for the creation of a vast new city as part of a greatly enlarged Shanghai. I asked myself, could this be possible, I wondered, in the proposed relatively short time frame they were talking about? Most of you, of course, have seen the answer. Of course it was possible, just as it was replicated in varying degrees all over China. I was reminded again of the staggering rate and dimension of transformation just a few weeks back when I was in Shenzhen again. Shenzhen in the early 80s 
merely a small fishing village of some 25,000 people, now a thriving metropolis of some 14 million, including floating residents. I have seen in the faces of a more confident and prosperous people some evidence of the fact that some 400 million Chinese people have been lifted out of poverty over this period. As to the second point, how to explain this constant scepticism, bordering in many cases on thinly or not at all disguised antagonism. Now with many people it is simply a matter of racial prejudice, but more generally I believe it reflects a fear and an apprehension about the unravelling of existing power structures, in particular the now fairly long-standing preeminence as a superpower of the United States. When my American friends expressed their concern about China becoming in absolute terms uh, the world's largest economy, as it certainly will well before the, end of, um, well before the middle of this century, I tried to put it into perspective for them by pointing out that when that does occur, China will be merely resuming the position it has occupied for most of the last two and a half thousand years. But perspective always has to battle prejudice. But the undeniable fact is that whenever that point of China becoming the absolute, in absolute terms the largest economy occurs, whenever that occurs, the fact is that China has already achieved a position where what happens in that economy is critically important for the world, for the Asian region and particularly for Australia. To a very considerable extent, the recent lifts and the projections by the IMF uh, are based on and reflect an upgrading of their forecast for Chinese growth towards the 8% uh, growth figure for 2009 that the Chinese leadership throughout this year has consistently asserted is an achievable goal. Now, before considering in more detail the current and the future implications for the world, for the region and for Australia of this new China revolution, let us remember, my friends, for it is insufficiently remarked upon, the correl this correlated an absolutely fundamental fact. The spectacular growth in China in the 1980s spooked the Soviet leadership. It eroded their confidence in the state command model of economic management and was a significant element in the prelude to the collapse of the Soviet Union. As Prime Minister, I had the direct opportunity to absorb this reality from both ends of the equation. During discussions with the Chinese leadership during the early 1980s, they observed in responding to my questions that Soviet officials and farmers in their thousands would cross the border into China, see for themselves the remarkable growth in output and income of the Chinese farmers and enterprises and return back into the Soviet with glowing reports of what they had seen. And the impact of this was starkly apparent in a very lengthy meeting I had in Moscow in December of 1987 with Gorbachev. China was the subject he wanted most to discuss and knowing my close and ongoing association with the Chinese leadership, he kept plying me with questions about my assessment of what in fact was happening there. I was very frank, saying that in my judgement, 
the Chinese had got it right and he had got it wrong. The Chinese, I said, with very considerable and continuing success, had concentrated on economic reform, knowing that at some later stage, in the broader sense, political and social change would inevitably follow. In saying to Gorbachev that I thought the Soviet system would be caught short by his misplaced priorities, I think he understood that I would not be heartbroken by such an outcome. In any event, my friends, it is beyond dispute that the Chinese transformation after 1978 added very considerably to the other factors that cumulatively were leading to the Soviet collapse. And of course, the global significance of those related events had even wider ramifications for the close ties between the Soviet Union and India had been influential in maintaining restrictive, illiberal economic and trade policies in India. And the Soviet collapse was a vital factor in creating the environment for a gradual reversal of those policies, enabling India to become, for the first time, part of the Asian economic growth pattern. In other words, bringing all those factors together, the post-1978 Chinese transformation has been involved in bringing some two and a half billion extra people into the ambit of the market economy. This, together with the technological revolution in production and communications, has been an integral factor in the rate and scale of globalisation we have witnessed in the past quarter century. Against that background, I now want to examine briefly what I see as some of the more important implications of China's growth for Australia, the Asia-Pacific region and the world. First, Australia. When I held my first uh, Prime Ministerial press conference in 1983 with Australian and international foreign affairs correspondents and said at that conference that Australia's increased enmeshment with Asia in general and China in particular more than any other external factor would determine Australia's future well-being there was considerable scepticism expressed by the media and by others. Not anymore. Almost two-thirds of our exports now go to Asia, and China has just become our largest trading partner. When I look at the massive growth in trade between our two countries, my mind goes back to a long conversation I had in 1984 in Beijing with then Premier Zhao Ziyang. He had responded positively to my initiative to intensify the potential synergies between our iron and steel industries by offering the Chinese a joint venture at Mount Chano and the Pilbara. But having expressed great enthusiasm for that, Jiao Ziyang then expressed a concern he had about the future, and that is that over time the trade balance would work unfavourably against China. I counted that in my judgement this would not be the case because I was committed to lowering our tariff barriers and would facilitate Chinese exports into Australia. Now, this following table tells the story, and I think... Yes, there it is. Well, you can see there the, the massive increase in Australian exports from 467 million in 83 up to 32.5 billion was more than exceeded by the China's exports to Australia from quarter of a billion to 
two billion, and uh, which gave China a favourable balance in terms of merchandise trade. Uh, we, of course, provide more services to China, 4.7 against 1.4, which gives us a virtual equilibrium that you can see in our overall uh, balance of trade with China. So, uh, if there is an afterlife, uh, I think I can uh, uh, look Jiao Young in the uh, eye with confidence. <laughs> now, the importance of China to the Australian economy has, of course, been emphasised in the most recent period. Australia's performance in coming through the global financial crisis better than any other developed economy was a function of two things. It was a function of good economic management uh, here and of strong Chinese demand on our resource sector. Despite a depressed global economic and trading environment, two-way merchandise trade between our two countries in the period January to August 2009 increased by 24% over the same period last year, which gives you some indication of the impact and importance of that element in our performance, our economic performance, and doing so well compared with the rest of the world. The inexorable process of China moving to become our major, major trading partner has occurred within the context of warm government-to-government -government comity, extending back many years and the governments in this country of opposing political persuasions. As a result of a number of unrelated issues arising over this year, this comedy came under a cumulative pressure that threatened to destabilise the economic relationship. There's no time now to go into those issues other than the perception which developed within parts of the Chinese bureaucracy that uh, Chinese investment was not welcome in Australia. Fortunately, as a result of much patient work that has gone on behind the scenes, the positive attitudes of the past are being restored. And this fact, my friends, was reflected in two major speeches which were given at the end of last month in October. On the 26th of October, our Foreign Minister Stephen Smith, addressing the ANU China Institute, did an excellent job of restoring normality to the relationship from the Australian Express point of view. In particular, he emphasised how Australia had welcomed and would continue to welcome Chinese investment in the expansion of the Australian economy. I quote from Stephen's uh, speech briefly. He said, since November 2007, the Australian government has approved over 100 investment proposals from China to acquire Australian businesses. 96 of the 100 were approved unconditionally. The current government has approved Chinese investment, including Chinese investment in both business and non-business sectors, of over $38 billion. He said, we welcome this investment. Four days later, uh, Vice Premier Li Keqiang expected to be either the next Premier or President of China, delivered in Sydney an equally compelling and genuine speech in what was an eloquent and deliberate rebalancing of the relationship, the Vice Premier had this to say, and I quote a little bit of length here because I regard it as fundamentally important. He said, 
The purpose of my visit is to deepen mutual trust, improve collaboration, fix the future course of the relationship, seek common development, consolidate the China-Australia friendship, and further development an all-round collaborative relationship in a mutually beneficial manner so that everyone becomes a winner. I am full of hope and confidence that this can be achieved. He concluded on an extremely positive note for the future, and I quote him again. He said, I believe that as long as both sides adhere to the overall direction of peaceful development and mutually beneficial collaboration, look at the overall relationship from a long-term perspective, are prepared to help each other in times of difficulty, and are sincere in our cooperation, new vitality will be injected into the continued development of the relationship. The all-round mutually beneficial and win-win relationship will almost certainly continue to be advanced to new levels in the 21st century. Very reassuring set of comments, and when taken together with those of our own Foreign Minister, I think justify my proposition to you that the relationship is getting back well on the track. Now, my friends, I have to this point in my remarks uh, dealing with the China-Australian nexus concentrated on the economic dimension. However, to appreciate fully the potential for even closer and more beneficial relationships in the, to the future, we should not forget the issue of people-to-people -people relationship, a factor which was mentioned both by Stephen Smith uh, and uh, the Chinese Vice Premier. While it is true that cultural exchanges are important and are growing in importance, this people-to-people -people relationship basically has currently three significant components. First, and very importantly, the 600,000 people of Chinese descent who now call Australia home, great citizens, and so many of whom provide a continuing, vibrant connection with China. Secondly, education as you know so well from your own experience. But as far as Australia as a whole is concerned, some 125,000 Chinese students, approximately 25% of all foreign students in Australia today, will become ongoing ambassadors to China for our own country, as have so many hundreds of their predecessors that I've now met on my many visits to China. And thirdly, tourism. China is our fastest expanding market for overseas visitors. Now, I believe that these elements, together with the opportunities for growing economic synergies, provide a solid and rational basis for the optimism into the future expressed by both ministers. Now, if I may introduce at this point a local flavour into this analysis, Queensland is demonstrating that it is an important element in these grounds for optimism. As the following facts indicate, the relationship is already very strong. Firstly, in regard to merchandise trade. China is Queensland's major trading partner after Japan. Queensland merchandise exports to China grew by a remarkable 23% per annum over the 10 years to 2007-2008, and the temporary setback last year is being reversed in 2009. Services exports in education, Queensland plays a roughly commensurate role with the rest of Australia 
in hosting Chinese students, but when it comes to tourism, the story is vastly different. On the latest breakup available, which was 2007, Queensland received 161,000, or 47 per cent, of all Chinese visitors to Australia. I repeat that. 47% of all Chinese visitors to Australia, Queensland. A remarkably high proportion, but may I say not surprising when you consider the wonderful range of attractions you have to offer in this state. And the final point in regard to Queensland and China, question of state and municipal links. This year is the 20th anniversary of the Queensland-Shanghai Sister State Memorandum of Cooperation. Queensland also has since 2008, a friendship state agreement with Guangdong province. And ten cities, including Brisbane, uh, with Shenzhen and Chongqing, Chongqing, by the way, the biggest city in the world, ten cities, including Brisbane, have sister-to-sister cooperative agreements and arrangements with their Chinese counterparts. So I've dealt now with Australia in general and uh, uh, Queensland in particular in regard to the impact of the rise of China. Second, the Asia-Pacific region. China's dramatic rise has on balance been undoubtedly good uh, for the region. The fact that imported parts and components constitute two-thirds of the value produced in China's processing sector is of course reflected in China running a current account deficit with the rest of Asia. And economic realities have shaped outcomes on potentially dangerous political situations in the region. The increasing interdependence of the Japanese economy with China has meant and will continue to mean that the occasional vocal outbursts on contiguous maritime resources and other sensitive matters will remain just that, vocal outbursts. But, my friends, nowhere has this fact of the dominance of economic realities been more apparent uh, than in regard to Taiwan. I have for long expressed the view that the increasing enmeshment of the Taiwanese economy with the mainland would mean that the Taiwanese elite would not tolerate adventurism by their political leadership that could precipitate armed conflict. And I may say it is very reassuring now to see those realities being translated into a range of increasingly positive contacts between the mainland and Taiwan. Now, in looking to the significance of China's rapid development in relation to the United States, I think it's useful, my friends, uh, to start with a brief historical context. During the Cold War period, the United States' policy towards Asia was essentially a residual of its broader strategy of containment of the Soviet threat. The Asian tiger economies were held up as shining examples of competitive market systems. There was, in fact, a happy coincidence between strategic imperatives and sensible trade policies, with the United States opening its markets to the products of these burgeoning economies. And China was viewed through the same Cold War prism. And President Nixon's famous visit to China in February 1972 was calculated to establish not an alliance of bosom friends but a basis of understanding between two nations each with a very real apprehension about the hegemonistic intentions of the Soviet Union. 
And when its transformation developed in the 1980s, China, like the tiger economies, benefited from relatively open US markets. But of course, when the Soviet Union collapsed, the United States' game plan changed. The East Asian nations that have been held up as exemplars were now often posed as threats uh, to United States' economic prosperity, as was China, which again came to be viewed in the more normal ideological antagonistic terms of the past. The United States-China relationship of the last decade of the last century could be best described as one of uneasy coexistence, with the voice of the growing presence of United States companies operating in China acting as a counterweight to protectionist prejudices and pro-Taiwan independence sentiment within the United States. But the dramatic emergence of a new commonly perceived threat to their respective national security injected a warmer, more positive note into the relationship early in this new century. The United States appreciated the immediate and supportive concern with which China reacted to the events of 9-11-2001. China had its own concerns about Islamic extremists, particularly in regard to the Xinjiang region in the east. A measure of its commitment to cooperate in the fight against terrorism was its preparedness to accept what previously would have been inconceivable, and that is acceptance of the presence of United States armed forces in the Central Asian republics. However, as in the earlier period of shared apprehension of the Soviet Union, this new bonding element has existed alongside an evolving set of economic realities carrying their own implications for Sino-US relations. Within a fortnight of 9-11, China's terms of entry into the World Trades Organization were finalized with US agreement, thus setting the stage for a further acceleration of China as a major player in the, in, in the international economy, a process which has continued through this first decade of this century. While China's exports for 2009 are significantly lower than in 2008 as a result of the world downturn, China is increasing its international market dominance. This year, passing Germany as the world's biggest exporter, and within the United States, China has this year displaced Canada as the largest supplier of imports into, into the United States providing 90% of total imports against Canada's 14.5. In this, context, in, in this uh, context, increasing sentiments against Chinese imports, as you know, forced President Obama reluctantly to raise tariff protection on tyres. But of course, for the United States administration, dealing with the phenomenon of China's unprecedented rapid economic growth is a much more complex issue. As of September, China officially held 800 billion US dollars, or 23% of all US Treasury securities on issue, making it, making it easily the largest holder of US securities, with Japan second some $150 billion behind China. And remember this, this figure of 800 billion is closer in fact to 970 billion, or 26% of total, if account is taken of securities purchased on China's behalf by agents in London, which then appear in the statistics under a UK source. The global financial crisis did not project many images giving rise to mirth. But I must say 
the picture of Secretary of State Clinton pleading with the Chinese leadership to keep buying US Treasury bonds caused me some merriment. Here was the Chinese dragon going from strength to strength as it moved away from socialism to a market economy, being implored to lend money to the United States so it could socialise General Motors and some of its leading financial institutions. In a way, this delightful paradox encapsulates the essence of where the Sino-US relationship has been, where it is now and, where, and what can be the basis for a reasonable and productive relationship into the future. Since the establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949, there has never been any ideological basis for agreement between the two countries. When they have come together, it has not been by way of mutual attraction, but by a mutually shared perception of threat by another entity. But while this uh, political strategic factor has varied in intensity, there has been a steady growth in economic interdependence between the two countries. The US takes 30% of China's exports, and China, my friends, has no interest in seeing a collapse of the US economy, a fact reflected in the increase of 180 billion US dollars, or approximately 30% over this year, in the official purchase by China of US Treasury securities. There is no stronger basis, my friends, for any relationship than mutual self-interest. And the leadership of both countries is intensely aware of this interdependence. But at the public level, it is another matter. It is disturbing to read of a November the 16th CNN poll in America that showed that 70% of respondents said they considered China to be an economic threat. As I have often said, ignorance is always the enemy of good policy. The challenge for President Obama is to enlighten his own citizens and thus create a climate within which he can legitimately pursue discussion with China on relevant economic issues such as exchange rates policy. Now, my friends, I spent some time on the US dimensions of China's growth, for I deeply believe that nothing is more vital to optimise our chances for a peaceful, prosperous and environmentally sustainable world than a sound relationship between the United States and China. The ideological chasm of nearly 60 years ago has narrowed. China is a significantly more liberal country. The fact is that US, the US and China are in different ways both great countries. Talk of a G2 is, I think, rather over the top. But without a doubt, we have a vested interest in these two countries reaching common or compatible positions on issues which affect our global economic, strategic and environmental future. Now that brings me naturally to the third aspect, that is the implication of China's growth for the world as a whole. Now I'll deal with this fairly briefly. The economic implications are implicit in much of what I've said to this point, but there are three aspects I would briefly mention. First, the leadership of China has clearly, within the last couple of years, made a decision to assume a role within the conduct of global affairs more in tune with its greatly enhanced economic status. And this is a perfectly logical development and is in part the reason why the G20 has now been rec recognised as the most relevant international grouping. Second, the pursuit of resource security has now become a foundational element of China's foreign policy, an absolutely foundational element of its foreign policy. 
This has meant a very considerable expansion of Chinese influence into areas where it had not before been a significant player, and this is most particularly true of the African continent. Third, China will be a critically important player in any successful attempt to deal with the pressing challenge of climate change. China, with the United States, is the world's largest contributor to global warming, and its leadership, I can assure you, is acutely aware of both the growing dimension of the problem and, I believe, of China's responsibility to make a meaningful contribution to creating a sustainable environment. My friends, China is caught in a pincer. It's caught in the pincer of the degradation on the one hand of its environment caused by its own rapid economic transformation and on the other by the grave threat to its water supply posed by an emerging pattern, um, an emerging change in the pattern and rate of glacier melting. China is not saying to the developed world, you polluted your way to prosperity, it's your problem, you fix it. Rather, China is making it clear that it will be a positive partner in negotiations with the developed world committed to establishing the massive funds required to assist China and other developing countries make the changes which will enable them to make their contribution to meeting this existential challenge. My friends, I make no apology whatsoever for the very positive approach I bring to my assessment of China and the implications of its rapid economic development for us and for the rest of the world. I do this because I believe it and also because of my reaction against what is often the negative and prejudiced analysis of China we see in so much of our and the United States media. By the ideal standards of Western democracy, it is, of course, easy enough to find things to criticise. But my view is that if you're really serious about wanting to help, the sensible thing to do is to raise issues in private discussion. Preaching from the public pulpit is counterproductive and indeed, in my judgment, there is a faint sense of the obscene when one hears American politicians publicly fulminating about human rights in China. I can't help thinking about the World Bank report. This was at the end of the last century, still be true now. Can't help thinking about the World Bank report, which found that a child born in Beijing or Shanghai had a better chance of reaching the age of 12 months than a child born in Washington or New York. This leads me to conclude as I began. I congratulate all those responsible for this concept of Australia-China future dialogues. Dialogue, not the public parade of prejudice, is the way to go. Our two countries are unique in the economic synergies open to us and the lack of historical baggage that we bring to the table. Australia and China, Australians and Chinese have so much to learn from each other. There are so many ways we can help one another and together play our part as nations and as peoples in helping to shape a more prosperous or equitable and sustainable world. I thank you and I wish you well in your endeavours. Um, ladies and gentlemen, vote of thanks. I'd like to invite uh, Professor Andrews to the stage to offer his vote of thanks to our guest speaker. Mr. Hawke.
Vice Assistant President of uh, Peking uh, University, Li Qiang, and Assistant uh, President uh, Zhu Xing. Welcome to Australia and to this collaboration. Uh, Vice Chancellor Ian O'Connor, O'Connor uh, Minister Stephen Robinson, and Minister Cameron Dick, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I, like everyone else here, I think was fascinated by the insights that our former Prime Minister brought us today. And, uh, and of those, I think, for me at least, the most startling uh, was the observation that uh, China will be the biggest economy in the world well before the middle of, the, of this century. Uh, I was struck, Prime Minister, then by uh, the question that Professor Zhu Jing asked you about science and technology. Uh, because in, in that area, in the knowledge economy, China will be the biggest economy long before the middle of the 21st century. Um, over the last 10 years, the number of publications emerging from Chinese universities, research publications, is multiplied by five, from about 20,000 to about 115,000. And China will be the biggest publisher in the scientific literature by the end of this decade. Some people say that China will already be the biggest, will have the largest number of scientists and engineers by next year. That's an extrapolation from National Science Foundation data, and I'm not sure how they get it, but in any event, it's going to be sometime soon. And uh, Professor Jushin has just uh, mentioned to me over lunch that in the area of nanotechnology, which is his specialty at least, uh, China has already been the biggest publisher in the world for the past three years. So, in the sense that science and technology will drive the knowledge economy, in the sense that science and technology will be the driver of our efforts to meet the sorts of environmental challenges that you addressed, and in the sense that they will also drive the future of our health and other social systems, uh, China is going to be the leader in the very near future. And it seems to me that it's important, uh, you were just asked about the future of our cultural relations with China. Uh, it seems to me that it is going to be absolutely vital for us to have really close scientific and technological ties with China. If we're going to be, if we're going to have a seat at that uh, table throughout the rest of this century. And some things are already happening, and you uh, very kindly mentioned a number of the things that have happened in both Australia and Queensland in terms of the building of those uh, relationships. Uh, one or two additional ones that have happened in Queensland that I think are quite important, uh, in addition to the visit uh, of Vice Premier Lee uh, a few weeks ago, and I know that you met with him in Sydney at that time, uh, we have had earlier this year and last visits from both the President of the uh, Chinese Academy of Science, Professor Liu, and, uh, and his Deputy President, uh, uh, Professor Li. Uh, and as a result of that, the signing of very substantial research and uh, ex fellowship exchange programs between China and Queensland in the areas 
some of which you mentioned, biotech, climate change, clean energy, clean coal, etc. So I think there's a, there's a clear move afoot in Queensland, as of course elsewhere in Australia, to drive that science and technology relationship. And I'm delighted uh, to uh, welcome Consul Chow, who has arrived here a couple of weeks ago to become just the second Chinese science and technology consular official in Australia, uh, to Queensland. Uh, I think there's a, there's a building of those relationships uh, that is going to be very significant, but at the same time, from everything you've said today, it's equally evident that there is a very, very long way to go in the development of those relationships. And you mentioned particularly dialogue, uh, rather than the parading of public prejudice, I think you said. Dialogue has been one of the important aspects, and the other one is the people-to-people -people relationships. And we've seen evidence of both today, of the starting of both. Firstly, in the, uh, the formation and today's first official uh, address of the Australia-China Future Dialogues program. And I think everybody here would recognise what a great step that's been by Griffith University and Peking University to develop that program. And the other one you mentioned is the people-to-people -people relationships. And, uh, and I think anyone that's listened to our former Prime Minister talking today, especially when he mentioned the fact that he's just come back from his 83rd trip to China since 1978, would have to say that there couldn't be, I don't imagine, anyone that has been a more committed, dedicated builder of people-to-people -people relationships between our nation and China. So, Mr Hawke, thank you very much for your commitment to this such an important future relationship between these two nations. Thank you very much for coming along and sharing your insights with us today. Uh, I'm sure everyone else here agrees with me in, in hoping very much that you will come and share them again even after your 80th birthday. And, uh, and I think we all look forward to working with you to uh, converting your vision into reality. Thank you. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.